Good, thanks, Ian. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good. Oh, there's a lot more people awake now, Ian. You've woken them up. Good job. Um, for those of you who don't know me, as Ian said, my name is Gary, and I have the privilege of being one of the elders here at Journey Community Church. And I have another privilege of kicking off our new series this week. So this month, we're doing a series called God Has a Name. And we're going to take a bit of a deep dive into looking at the character of God. So what is God really like? That's a question we wish we could all answer, right? We all wish we could know exactly what God was like. So we're going to dig a little bit deeper over these next few weeks and try and understand who God is. So we'll be anchoring this series in Exodus 34. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and flick there. We'll read that in a minute. The inspiration for this series came from, there's a book called God Has a Name, funnily enough, written by a guy called John Mark Comer. Some of you might know him. So if you want to go and read the book, go and do that. That will give you a lot more knowledge than what I'm going to give you this morning. I'll give you the snapshot. But if you don't want to read the book, that's good. You'll get the quick and easy version that I've broken down to understand myself this morning. So Exodus 34, verses 5 to 8. It says, The Lord passed before him as is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So that's what we're going to be unpacking over these next few weeks. It was William Shakespeare who wrote, What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. He didn't write it exactly like that. That's the modern version. But who knows what that's from? Does anyone know the play? Leslie Henry not here? No? No, she's gone. Romeo and Juliet, the most famous one. Obviously no one's a, a keen Shakespeare fan. Surprising and fun fact about me... I studied drama at school. Those of you who know me will be saying there is no way on this earth that is true. But it actually is true. I was deemed not smart enough to study English literature. And when I say not smart enough, I mean I did not try hard enough to study English literature. So I was put in a class with the drama guys, which was half people who really, really wanted to be there and half people who really, really did not want to be there. And you can imagine I fitted into the latter group, dressing up. Being on a stage is not really for me. If you were at the boot bash, you've seen my Halloween costume was Noah's cowboy hat. And that was just because he didn't want to wear it. So I was wearing it. Um, so that was me dressing up. That was me pushing the boat out. So as part of doing drama, I had to be in the play. The only role they found for me to be in the play was a stagehand, which meant I got to dress in black and not be seen. That was how good I was at drama. So look at me now. I've got this big stage all to myself. If my drama teacher could see me, she would be laughing her head off at me. But anyway... I know a little bit about Shakespeare from those days. And he paraphrased this from his most famous work, Romeo and Juliet. And it's part of that Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou? Those guys in the balcony, you can do a rendition of that if you want this morning. We all know that part, don't we? We all know that part. And they use this line to convey the fact that naming, or not the fact, to convey the idea that the naming of things is completely irrelevant. That names don't matter. And what Juliet is saying to Romeo is that while their family names, for those of you that don't know the story, the two families are at war with each other. Um, they're supposed to be enemies. Their names should make them enemies. They are, in fact, lovers. So they're saying our names don't mean anything to who we are. And there's quite a lot of that that goes on in society at the moment. 
You know, people love to define their own truth. People love to reject labels. And there's a movement happening in culture at the minute that believes that actually we get to create our own truth. There's, this morning, I would like to suggest to you is that actually there is a lot in a name. That names actually do carry meaning. And there's two truths from Scripture I want to highlight this morning as we begin, because Scripture is the ultimate authority for what is true. Number one, I want you to know that God is who he says he is. God is who he says he is. Do we believe that this morning? Number two, I want you to know that before you were created in your mother's womb, God knew you and he called you by name. And that's a powerful picture, isn't it? Before we eat, were even conceived, before anything happened, God knew who you would be, and he knew you by name. And this is referenced in Scripture multiple times, most notably probably in Jeremiah, but also in the Psalms. Paul mentions it in his letter to the Galatians. It's also referenced in Isaiah 49, verse 1, where it says, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. So to me, it seems that names are actually pretty important that there actually is a lot for us to understand about someone just by looking at their name. And of course, the most important name of them all is God's name. Throughout scripture, we see God is referenced as many, many different things from the very obvious one, God, to really cool ones like Ancient of Days. That's a good one, isn't it? It's very, very 90s. I feel like that should be coming back anytime soon. He's referred to as Father or Abba if you're super holy and you like a bit of Hebrew. The Most High God. There's a few other Hebrew names in there, like Elohim. El Shaddai, meaning God Almighty. Jehovah Jireh, Adonai, Alpha and Omega, the first and last beginning and the end. And of course, we can't forget the names that are attributed to Jesus. King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Emmanuel, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. So should we just pick our favorite name and call him that? Pretty sure we all know there's at least one person who refuses to call God anything other than Abba because they're super holy and that's God's father. They have such a good relationship. That's what they call him. Full transparency, I'm actually a really big fan of declaring the names of God in prayer. You know, I like to declare who he is over whatever it is I'm praying praying into. So you'll hear me praying. Sometimes I'll say, Jesus, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I like to just remind myself in prayer who he is over and in every situation. And that's okay. And God has many different titles that he goes by in scripture, but he does have an actual name and that is important for us to understand this morning because actually it affects how we interact with him. Names carry meaning. Has anyone seen that really weird show that's been on Netflix? Is it cake? Any fans? Ian's a fan. You're the only one, Ian. I actually don't watch it myself, I'm afraid to say. Uh, I I don't think that would be overly entertaining. It is awesome, you think so? Okay. Well, I seen one. I seen one a few weeks ago. The Red Bull F1 team, they put this video, obviously based around the show. They had Max Verstappen's Formula One helmet, Super Max, let's go. And they had a cake of his helmet as well, side by side. So I was watching this and I was like, I've always wondered what the show was like. People cutting cake doesn't seem that exciting, but I was watching this and they had these two identical things sitting side by side. And I thought to myself, well, this is easy. That one's the cake. And they take a knife and they cut into the actual helmet and it turns out that the helmet is the cake and all of a sudden I realized why people like this show. I was bought in, but my brain was all kinds of confused. 
because I had given that a label. I had given that a name and said, that is the helmet. So when it turns out I was wrong, my head was all over the place. Names matter. What we call things, the labels we give them, they matter. Have you ever wondered why one of Adam's first jobs in the garden was to name all of the animals? Because you approach a dog a lot differently to how you approach a lion. Names matter. As an example, let me give you my name. So my full name is Gary Stewart Smith. That's a good one. Um, I've read, I read a few years ago that the name Gary was actually going extinct. It's making, is, there any, is there any Garys in the room today? There's one? Yes. My man. You'll like this bit then. So I've read it was going extinct, but it's, it's maybe on the comeback. Some people are starting to use it again. Um, but I went and looked up what it means. So Gary is a Germanic name, which means spear, or as I prefer it, mighty with a spear. So that's what Gary means. It's like, it's like a warrior. So the name Gary to me, it always sounded a wee bit, no offense, Gary, it always sounded a wee bit, a wee bit dorky to me. I didn't really love it myself, but mighty with a spear and warrior, I'm 100% on board with that. Many years ago, Garys were feared and respected on the battlefield. Now I get compared to a cartoon snail that meows from SpongeBob. I was definitely born into the wrong time period. Me and God will have chats about that. But my middle name is Stuart. So I was named after the drummer from the police. Everyone knows that is, Stuart Copeland. Yep, from the band, that's the band, of course, that Sting was in, not the PSNI. My dad was a big music fan, and he named my older brother Stephen. He was named after Stevie Nicks, which as kids, I took great pride in saying, you are named after a girl. <laughs> Whenever he made fun of me being called Gary, at least I wasn't named after a girl. <laughs> Smith, or the name Stuart, sorry, Stuart is of Scottish origin and it means guardian, so the root of the name steward is from the word steward, so to look after something, to steward it well. Smith's an easy one, who knows what that means? Blacksmith, exactly, it comes from a blacksmith, which is a metal worker, so you put all those three together, and my name means warrior, guardian, worker. Sounds pretty tiring, it really, really is. <laughs> really, really, if I had a choice, I would have picked something different. My son is called Noah, and that means rest, so I blessed him with that. He will grow up as a child of rest. But those things put together, I would say, not to, not to brag or boast of myself, I would say that's a pretty good summary of what I'm like as a person. Looking at the life that I've lived, the things that I've gone through, I would say that was a pretty good summary of who I have become and the journey that I'm going on. And why do I tell you that? Well, as I said, names carry meaning. And understanding them helps us understand each other, but more importantly, it helps us to understand God. And it affects how we relate to him because his name carries significance to who he is. It carries significance to how we relate to him. Richard Dawkins, everyone remember him? He was big a few years ago. He was all over your Facebook comment section. He was the guy that exposed the church and he wrote this book called The God Delusion. He's an atheist hero. And Xander and Christine, if you're cutting the sermon, this is the part you do not cut and put on social media. What I'm about to say, this is not me, this is Richard Dawkins. He has this to say about God. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, just, unforgiving, control freak. Vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. Misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malvolent bully. That's a lot of big words. He's very smart, Richard Dawkins. 
He's very smart. That's what Richard Dawkins sees when he sees God. But the God I worship is the creator of beauty. He's the provider and sustainer. He's loving, he's merciful, he's mighty, he is just. He is righteous. He is good beyond my wildest imagination. He brings peace, hope, and joy to every situation. He goes above and beyond for his people. His will is good and perfect. My God has never once let me down. There is no one who has ever existed who is as good or can come as close to my God. But I would say we both read the same book. Richard Dawkins and I both had the same Bible. We both read the same book, but we have massively different views on who God is. And what we think about God matters. A.W. Tozer says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because we become like what we worship. That's how we are designed. We become like what we worship. What you think about God shapes who you are because our goal and our purpose in life is to become Christ-like, to become more like God. So who we think he is is actually of critical importance. Ian made a great comment a few, couple of weeks ago when he was preaching. He says, I used to read the Bible to tell, you said you used to read the Bible to tell you all the things that you were right about. Now you read it to tell you all the things you're wrong about to get offended. If you're reading scripture, you're praying, you're doing all the good Christian things and you find that God agrees with you on absolutely everything going, you're not being formed in his image. You're forming God into your image. You're trying to create a God that looks like you, that talks like you, that thinks like you. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve thought it was a good idea to try and make themselves like God, even when he told them not to. You see, in that moment, when they took the apple and when they were told that it would make them like God, they made the assumption that they knew what that meant. They made the assumption that they knew what becoming like God meant. They had an idea about God that affected their destiny. So here's the thing, we don't actually know what God is fully like. No one's ever uncovered the fullness of God, and there's a theological debate there as to whether it's even possible. But we can begin to learn what he is like. We can begin to uncover pieces of the puzzle bit by bit, but there's only one way that we can do that, and that is to go to the source, to go to God. So all of this buildup, what actually is God's name? You're all dying to know, as if it's not written in big letters behind me on the screen. <laughs> I designed that. I also read the sermon. I should have put two and two together, but I didn't. From the very beginning, God has existed. You know, we read the story of creation in Genesis, but we don't get anything close to a name until we get to a man named Abram, whose name, of course, was changed to Abraham. When God comes to Abraham in Genesis 17, he announces himself as El Shaddai, which means I am God Almighty. And while that's close to a name, it actually isn't. What God was doing here was introducing himself in a way that Abraham would understand. The word El that is used there was the Canaanite word for God, as in one of the many gods that they worshipped. And God was saying to Abraham, I am the God that is greater than all of the other gods you've heard about. I'm like those gods that you know, but I'm actually so much more. And from this point forward, generally, he's just known as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, as we move through the story of God's people. 
He becomes your dad's God. That's how he's known. He's known simply to his people as your dad's God, the God of Abraham, until we get to a man named Moses in Exodus. And God appears to Moses in the burning bush as he sets him a very simple task. Go back to Egypt and tell my people they're coming with me. Moses then says to God, well, who am I that I would go back and tell these people this? Who will I tell them has sent me? And it says in Exodus 3, verses 13 to 15, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God says that his name is I am who I am. One of the things that I find really interesting in reading a little bit about the background of this passage is actually understanding the context of the original question that Moses asked God here. When Moses asked God, well, who shall I say sent me? He doesn't simply ask, what's your name? What are you called? He asked this question, that is Ma Shema, which literally translated means, what is the meaning of your name? What is the significance of your name? Essentially, Moses is asking God, who are you and what are you like? And God kind of half answers the question when he responds with, I am who I am, which in the Hebrew is this phrase, Eya Asher Eya. But essentially, God is telling Moses, I am who I am, or a better way to put it, whatever I am, I will be. And what God is doing here is revealing to Moses just a little bit about who he is. He doesn't give him the whole thing. He gives him just a little bit because he's, what he is saying here is God is constant. God is God 24-7. He is consistent. So if he's good, he is good all of the time. If he's gracious, he is gracious all of the time. If he's compassionate, then he's compassionate all the time. If he's slow to anger, then he is slow to anger all the time. God is who he says he is. If you've ever had a friend that you thought you knew really well, and it turns out they have this secret that changes what you think about them, God's not like that. God is God all the time. God is true all the time. Whatever he says is true. So once you get to know God, once you get to understand his character and actually what he is like, that is what he is like all the time. He does not falter or change. And this can all get super complicated, but I'm going to keep it as simple as possible for my own sake this morning, more than anything else. But the name that God uses, I am, that word Eya we used there, that is how God says his name. But when we say his name, what we would say is he is, which roughly translated in a roundabout way, it's a lot deeper than what I'm making it out to be this morning, would be Yahweh. In your Bibles, you'll notice that name's not written much, if at all. They didn't like to write God's names down. If they did, they removed letters from it. And so roughly translated around, it becomes, in our modern language, Yahweh. And his name, they replaced that phrase, Yahweh, in your Bibles with the phrase, the Lord. So a lot of the time when you're reading, especially in the Old Testament, and you see that it says, the Lord, it should actually say, Yahweh. So from this interaction between God and Moses, we learn that God's name is Yahweh. He is. Everybody say that with me. He is. Whatever God says he is, he is. 
Everyone still with me? That's the deepest part of it, Don. You'll be glad to know. Skip a little bit further in your Bibles. We'll go to Exodus 34. And we see that God and Moses have another similar interaction. This time, they're way out there in the wilderness. They've escaped the Egyptians. Huge mistakes along the way. Moses is up Mount Sinai. He's conversing with God. You know, he's trying to smooth things over a little bit. And he asks God to show him his glory. Moses wants to know more of who God is. He wants to see him. And it says in Exodus 33, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. It says the Lord, it should say Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. I want you to hold that last little line there and set it aside for now that you cannot see my face and live. Hold that, set it somewhere else. If you're writing notes, put it on the side. So Moses asked God to see his glory. He wants to see the fullness of who God is. And there's a pattern emerging here in a God revealing himself to us throughout scripture. With Abraham, he gives a little glimpse. El Shaddai. I'm like the God you know, but I'm so much more. We get a bit further. He gives him just enough for Abraham to understand. We get a little bit further to Moses. He says, yeah, I'm Abraham's God. I'm the God Almighty. I'm that God, but I'm also consistent. I am what I am. And we get to the wilderness and Moses wants the whole picture. And I love this story because this is actually one of my life prayers with God as well. Show me your glory. Show me the fullness of your face. But it says God is gracious and merciful and he doesn't grant that request because it would cost Moses his life. But he does uncover a little bit more of the puzzle. He gives us a little bit more insight into who he is and what he is like. He invites us in that little bit further. And what happens is God says, well, you can't see my face. You can't see the fullness of who I am, but I will pass by and I will proclaim my name because his name carries significance to who he is. And here God answers the rest of Moses' original question at the burning bush. What is the significance of your name? In Exodus 34, six to seven, it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So here we get more of a picture of what God is like. Before it was just, I am. I'm constant. I'm consistent. But here God declares that he's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but at the same time holding the guilty accountable. He is just. And he is all of those things all the time. This is what God is actually like. He's not what other people tell you he is. He is what he says he is. And in declaring his name, God is telling us what he's really like. He's telling us who he is so that you can forget all of the other noise going on around you. This is what God is like. And you'll notice that he doesn't list how great he is. He doesn't list how powerful he is. He doesn't give us the job description. He doesn't tell us what he knows. He tells Moses about his character. And this is where God's name, Yahweh, becomes important to us. And this piece of scripture becomes important to us because knowing God on a personal level is so much different to knowing facts about God. 
It's so much different to knowing things about him because we serve a God who wants relationship with us. We serve a God who invites us in. And this picture is building throughout scripture as Yahweh interacts with his people. His name is declaring who he is and what he has come to do. His name shouts to everyone who will listen what is to come. His name declares the truth of what he is doing and has been doing in the earth from the beginning of time. You see, the Israelites were in the desert. They were going through a pretty hard time. They were displaced from their home. They were wandering around and they were doubting if God really was who they thought he was. If God really was the God that they were taught that he was. And we can read the Old Testament and we can get really critical of the people of Israel. You know, I could read that. I could say, you know, these guys saw an ocean split in two. These guys saw Egyptians showering them with gold as they left their life of slavery. Food appeared from nothing for these guys every single day. But still they worshipped a golden calf. They saw miracle after miracle, physical battle after physical battle that God would win for them, but they still didn't believe that God would come through for them. And time and time again in the Old Testament, Israel drifts away from God. They get a sign, they come back. And we can read this happening again and again, and we can go, I just don't understand how you could see all of these things happening and not give God your everything. But there's a very important part of this that we often forget when reading this. And it's the thing that sets apart the heroes of the faith the ones that we love to celebrate in the Old Testament. A personal relationship with God. A personal relationship with God in the Old Testament was, cho- was reserved for those he chose. Prophets, priests, and kings. They're the ones that we read about. The people had signs and wonders aplenty. You can have signs and wonders. You can have God working miracles in your life every single day. But if you don't have a personal relationship with God, if you don't know him and know who he is, it doesn't matter. And his name, Yahweh, as it was revealed to Moses, was an early invitation into that relationship. It was a signpost for what is yet to come. Because there is, of course, another name that is really important to us. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to your son and will call him Emmanuel. It's Christmas. Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment in God's invitation of relationship. Remember when Moses asked God to see his glory and God said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. Compare that with John 1:14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John, in the beginning of his gospel narrative, is pointing us back to Mount Sinai. From the outset, he's making the point that in Jesus, we see the fullness of God's glory. We see the fullness of his beauty and his presence like we've never been able to before. Jesus is Yahweh in human form. Further in John's gospel, in chapter 17, Jesus prays, I've revealed your name to those who you gave me out of the world. Jesus says, I have revealed your name, which we already know is a signpost to what God is really like. Jesus has revealed to us exactly what God is like. In the message translation, this is translated as, I spelled out your character in detail. And we can forget the full significance sometimes of Jesus and God being one because sometimes there exists this weird belief that while, yes, Jesus is fully God, he's also somehow this new character that entered the story because we messed up. 
And I've said this many times before at the front of church, but we need to remind ourselves, Jesus was always plan A. God knew from the beginning of time. He knows you now. He knows who you will become. He knows everything you've ever done. And Jesus was still always the way. Jesus was not a new idea that had to be interjected into the story to clean up our mess. Jesus was always there and will always be there. You know, we often use this phrase in church circles. It's it's been passed down from the early church. Jesus is Lord. We pray that prayer. Say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord over my life. But that phrase, do you know what it actually means? Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is I am. Jesus is constant. In John 8, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And far too often in our attempts to maintain reverence or fear of God, what we actually do is we reduce him down into little bite-sized pieces that we can understand. Have you ever had a conversation with someone about the difference in praying to God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit? It's often debated and talked about. Which one should you pray to? I met someone who said you should only pray to the Father because that's what, who Jesus prayed to. The truth is, there is no difference. They are all the same. Sometimes we create it like we have this Jesus box. You know, he's nice and he's kind and he's lovely. And then over here is my Holy Spirit box and we break that one out when we want to have a good time. And then over here we have God the Father and we set this one up here and we set it up on the shelf and we keep it away. And God the Father, you know, he loves me, but he's a little bit disappointed in my behavior. He's just a little bit not sure that I'm doing the right things and he just might get, he's slow to anger, but he might, he might still get there. But it's okay because he only looks at the Jesus box. He doesn't really care what I'm like. He doesn't really care what I'm doing because he only looks at the Jesus box. And we create this God that is manageable and he fits into our daily lives. We can wake up, we can talk to him when we want to. He does what we want him to do. We create a God, but we create a God at the same time that's manageable, but he's also unattainable. And what's worse than that, he's unrelatable because he is not who God is. And this popular narrative that Jesus is like your older brother who stepped in to take the punishment from dad so you wouldn't get hurt, it causes more damage than we really know. Because when we begin to understand who God is, that narrative could not be further from the truth. Jesus did not change God's attitude towards us. Jesus made the picture even clearer for us so we could see what God is really like. And the God that society has tried to shape, the God that society has tried to sell us is not the God of the Bible. Our God is a God of relationship. Our God is a God who responds to us. Our God is a God who interacts with us and who has actively been seeking to interact with us from the beginning of time. And the easiest way, the starting point for doing that is using his name, his understanding who he is and what our God is all about. I'm gonna close if you wanna, the worship, excuse me, if you wanna bring the worship guys back up now. I'm gonna close this on another passage from Exodus. I'm not gonna read it because I'm sure we all wanna get home for lunch. But basically it's the passage of scripture where God and Moses are having a back and forth God sees the golden calf and he says to Moses, your people are out there worshiping a golden calf. My anger is burning against them. I'm going to destroy them and create a new nation out of you, Moses. And Moses interjects with God and he says, 
well, what about the promise that you gave these people? What about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What about your name? If you destroy this people, the, the Egyptians will say you've brought them out of Egypt just to destroy them. You will harm your reputation. You will harm your name. And that passage in Scripture in Exodus 32, it ends with this. Moses puts his case towards God, and God says, and it says in, in Scripture, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken to bring on those people. And this is Exodus. And we have this interaction between God and Moses where Moses gets to change God's mind. And there's a lot to be said about that. There's a lot of theological deep digging about God's will, Moses' will, our will, how it all plays together. People will often talk this away and say, well, God didn't really change his mind because he knew what was going to happen anyway. But scripture is very clear. It says the Lord relented. Moses knew God by name. Moses knew who God was, therefore he had a voice in the relationship. And it says in Exodus as well, right before God goes to show Moses his glory, God says to Moses, you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. That is the ultimate goal for every single one of us. That not only would he know us by name, but we would know him by name. And we would have a relationship with God that is back and forth. A relationship with God is not praying and you just doing all the talking. You just doing all the reading of the Bible and nothing coming back. God is a God who responds. So I want to leave you with that this morning. That picture of God who responds to the will of his people. Do you want to stand up as we get ready to close in worship? God, we just worship you this morning. We declare your name, Yahweh. Yahweh. You are who you say you are, God. You are so good, God. And God, we thank you for that invitation. There is an invitation here this morning to know God more. And God, we thank you for that invitation. Why don't you just put your hands out if you're standing in your seat. You can pray this if you want. You don't have to. We just say, God, I want to know you more. Yahweh, open my heart to you this morning, God. Show me your ways this morning, God. Yahweh, Yahweh. God, we thank you that you are who you say you are this morning, God. And we lift you high in this place, God. Amen.